All right, guys, here we are. What is this uh, number four now for, for the round table? So we, we got the boys back on, on the podcast. So um, yeah, I guess, welcome back. Uh, usually you know, what we did last time, same thing, you know, kind of just a little update on us. I don't know if there's anything, Brandon, for you, man, that's been going on that you want to uh, share with the audience. Absolutely, guys. Well, first and foremost, uh, it's good to see you both. It's been a little bit. I feel like we used to be on a call like every single week uh, and it's been only like two or three, maybe four weeks. And it feels like forever. So first and foremost, you know, it's great to see you guys. Um, no, life's been busy, man. Uh, a lot of things going on in terms of my business, in terms of the mentorship and bringing on new mentees. And then just trying to get ahead of the game because next week we will be all meeting up for the PEC, the Physique Education Collective. And it'll also be my birthday. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys as well as some other friends and clients that I have meeting me out in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and then the other update, I don't know if I even had this show last time we did this. But I did start a, a new show called Chasing Clarity. It's a podcast. So I, I followed in the steps of, of these two young gentlemen. And um, that's been going incredibly well. So, you know, overall, life has been productive. Business is busy. And uh, I'm blessed. Awesome, man. Go ahead. I, I, I saw that uh, you had you had Lauren Collin on. Looks like you got have a couple of good guests. Are you guys doing something where you're just doing like some like solo ones and then some guests, too? Or what do you, what's kind of the game plan there with that? Yeah. So we actually set up, you know, you guys know I'm, I'm super organized and like structured with how I, how I do everything. Cause I'm, I'm have so little time. And so does Jeff. I mean, you know, I run two businesses, but Jeff has multiple gyms. He has an online coaching business. He has other businesses way outside of fitness that he owns. And so with that, we have very limited time. So we've structured it in the sense that we are doing topics and we're taking a topic and dissecting it down to be the end all be all on that topic. And it's something, you know, quite similar to what we've done, you know, on your podcast, Jeff, as well as your podcast, Jeremiah, we've done a lot of series because we get a lot of questions. So the first series we did was on how to calculate your total daily energy expenditure or your maintenance calories. And we went through, you know, from the first conceptual basis on the research, then we did the practical application. Then we brought on Lauren to have like the application or the bridging the gap between the research lab and the real world. And then we did a, a live Q&A where people could ask questions that they had collected through the course of that. And so this series that we're doing right now is all about metabolism. This will be probably a six or seven part series that we have. So what we're going to do is within every series, we're going to pick an expert within that field or within that category. So right now um, I'm discussing with a few research professors um, you know, that I've worked with previously and even some that I haven't, but I've just read a lot of their research about coming on to talk about you know, true, the true ins and outs of metabolism, the complex processes, the chemical processes. And we would have already covered by that time. We've already covered uh, all things metabolism. This week's episode will be on, um, you know, how to increase your metabolic rate or your total daily energy expenditure through training. Next week will be on the nutritional factors that increase metabolism as well as total daily energy expenditure. Then we're going to do a deep dive. And you guys know, I'm going to do one on metabolic adaptation because that's like one of my hobby horses. We're going to do one on um, metabolic damage and all that stuff. And then we're going to bring, bring on a researcher. So it's kind of structured in that fashion where it'll probably be four episodes to every one, like a four to one ratio between Jeff and myself, and then bringing on an expert to tie, you know, try to tie in the things because Jeff and I both come from a coaching background. Obviously I have a, a good amount of background in research and statistics, but I'm not to the level of a lot of these high level guys, like the, the individuals that you guys have had on. So for instance, Jeff, and Jeremiah, I'm sure you have as well, guys like Bill Campbell, Dr. Bill Campbell, like these guys have such an immense amount of experience within the research lab. They haven't coached, but they have such great information and great experience. And they're also able to deliver it to laymen. So we're looking for individuals like that. So 
That's a really cool layout as well. I really like the live Q&A for an episode. That's a super cool idea, not something I've seen people do before. No, and that was that ended up being really interesting because imagine like we're us three are on the mic right now. And it, it's, you know, difficult enough to get all three of us to, you know, speak at the right times. But we had, you know, audience of like 12 or 13 people on there. And then we also had questions that were sent in just like we have. So we're doing a Q&A right now with obviously questions that we already received from the audience. So we had a full list of questions, but then we had people that, you know, we had coaches in the space. We had Michael from iLead. We had Jason Coley's who's great with, with training. And so when we would get a question, sometimes we would ask if the audience wanted to participate. So it's, it's really good to get some interactive interaction, you know, social media is supposed to be social, but so many people kind of neglect that aspect. They only do the media side. So what we really wanted to do with this podcast, that specific format of the podcast was to be able to bring our audience in and really get them to interact with us, ask us questions on the spot and just generate some engagement. So that's, I love it, man. Jeff, what's going on with you, dude? Um, well, finally, I maybe, I think maybe last time we chatted, I just got done with the photo shoot. So now we went through a little health phase, was training three days a week. Uh, that was nice, nice little break for a little bit. Uh, wasn't tracking for a little while. Um, so that was super nice to just kind of put more time towards the business and, and focusing on that. Um, it was funny because I told you, I was like, Hey, I need a little, uh, I, I kind of want to dial back on training. And then you sent me over three days and I'm like, I'm already like automatically, like I, I know in my head, I'm like, <laughs> I need enough. to do this. Right. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, but I'm like, dude, you just got to chill out. But it was, it was really nice. It was weird on those days, man, to like, you know, go from like when me and you first started, I was doing like six days and then kind of mm-hmm. dialed it back to five. Now, now the, now to three for just a temporary period of time. But it was weird on those like Tuesdays and Thursdays, man. I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with myself. It's like so weird how like you right. feel like you feel like you don't have all this time. And then all of a sudden, like one thing kind of drops off and now you're like, well, shit, now what am I going to do? You know, almost type of thing. So, <laughs> um, but it was nice, man. It was nice to get that little switch up, take a little break from tracking. Um, I've been able to, uh, I was able to maintain my weight pretty well. Like during that time too, I wasn't tracking. Um, and, and to me, that was a big win because, you know, I came off a fat loss diet and then I still had, you know, we had, uh, the, uh, engagement party, like the next day, um, we traveled to Nashville. Like, so we've been doing things and it was cool to be able to like, just kind of intuitively just, just maintain and, and not necessarily like go crazy with it. I think part of that probably was cause I didn't get like super, super shredded. Um, but I was still like, got to the point to where, you know, I was getting hungry and like food still freaking tasty. I'll, I'll tell you, you looked great. You know, yeah, it's, it's those were crazy. you guys, yeah, you guys did an incredible job and I saw the photos and I was, I was thoroughly impressed because the day of, or the day before your photo shoot, we did the last coaches Q and a, and two things that I want to, you know, um, commend you for, first of all, you were not anxious or nervous at all. And the next day, the next morning you got engaged. Like when I saw that my mind, because <laughs> I would have been a nervous wreck with, even with my friends. And then second of all, you were, were great cognitively. And that's something I get really dialed in when I do diet. It does improve my cognition. If you actually look in the research, there isn't a link or an association between a decrement in cognition or brain um, functioning with dieting, but there is a psychological effect. So a lot of people think because they have low energy in terms of their energy intake, that their mental energy and cognition is impaired. And that's not the case. And that's why we actually see in fasting trials, a lot of people do a, sub, a subjective or self-reported um, you know, rating that they feel better cognitively, like they feel more cl- clarity and things of that sort. But a lot of times it is the energy deficit. We're feeling it, you know, fatigue, all of a sudden physiological fatigue starts going onto psychological fatigue, but you were sharp, you know, with questions all the way through. We did multiple podcasts while you were dieting. Same thing with Jeremiah. 
And so, uh, you know, I commend you, my friend, and congratulations. I finally get to congratulate you on the line. Yeah, thanks, man. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I was definitely freaking nervous for sure. I was nervous for like, because like it, it was, it was we, we planned it out. I planned it out, not we. I planned it out for a while. And, and so it was like getting everything together. That And it just, it, I'm sure you guys can relate to this, but like sometimes when you have things like that, you don't really realize like, how big of a role, like, like you kind of almost just kind of brush it off in terms of like the stress. Right. And I, I wonder how many people like go through life that way, where it's just like, they're constantly stressed and they just don't even realize it, you know, where they're just like, not aware of that. I feel like I'm pretty aware. So like I had an idea towards the end where I'm like, damn, I'm just like super stressed out about this and, and whatnot. But uh, no, man, I appreciate that. And then again, I think, I think though, like the cognition part, I think again, part of that was like, I didn't, part of the reason why I didn't want to get like super shredded was, you know, because part of that reason too, is, is because of that, like, I didn't want to like have it start to affect like work. Like, I feel like now I have to put a lot more like mental, uh, have to have a lot energy. more mental it's, capacity. It's a resource. Energy. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah it, no, it's, it's a resource hundred percent. And that's actually why I stopped competing. I realized at one point, you know, I competed 15 times over the years and obviously I still do photo shoots and stuff, but I'm not getting down to 4.2% body fat anymore. And the reason for was I really got into this position, into this crossroad where I said, am I going to prioritize my clients or my own competitions? It's got to be one or the other. And it, I went with the business and bec- it was because I saw during those contest preps, I was struggling during the la- those last four to six weeks, man, especially for like a national competition, you're paying thousands of dollars to compete. So it's a major investment, both time and, and monetarily. And I realized, listen, I actually get much more validation or fulfillment out of helping other people go through that process than even me doing it myself. Yeah, no, I love Absolutely. that, man. And, and, and I feel like too, you like, don't even really like notice it very much either, you know, and then, then, then you look back and you're just like, oh damn. Okay. I definitely was like way off there with that too, you know, and, and, and that's not great for the clients either, you know? So, um, but yeah, so now, uh, back in a building phase, so starting to eat a little bit more again. Um, and so that's exciting and just back to good old hypertrophy work and, and, and just trying to, to get jacked and build as much muscle as I can. So, um, but yeah, man, that's, that's it for me and, and looking forward to, uh, next weekend as well. So, yep. Uh, Jeremiah, what about you, man? Yeah, dude. Again, I was stoked with how your photo shoot turned out. Um, I thought you mentioned you didn't get shredded, but you still look pretty fucking shredded in the pictures. I was just, I was just looking at your pictures as I was designing your program, like trying to look for, okay, what are like the weaknesses Jeff has that we might want to bias a little bit more? And it's like across the board, <laughs> you're just in a solid place, man. So I was very, very happy with how those turned out. Um, speaking to the energy side of it as well, I definitely think that is something that coaches should be aware of. I think at the start of the diet, like getting like how much more structured and regimented it makes you, I think honestly, you're more productive. Um, I have also had a few people, let me see if I can fix my mic here. Um, yeah, I don't really have too much else as far as updates. I'll let one of you guys take this away for a second. I think there's something to want with Mike. I don't know if I'm the only one hearing that. Jeff, do you hear him a little bit muffled? Yeah, it's it's, it's off just a little bit, but. That better? Yeah, there we go. Way better. Okay, cool. Okay, my bad. So anyways, what I was saying is I've actually had a few applicants reach out lately to apply for coaching. And one of our questions is, hey, have you ever worked with a coach before? And I've had multiple multiple people say lately, like I was working with a coach, but they started a contest prep and they just completely ghosted me, which just absolutely blows my mind that that is something (laughs) that can happen. So, I mean, I would say like, if you are a coach, and you are going to like, hey, I'm going to do extremely shredded. Make sure you're aware of like the trade-offs there. Please don't ghost your clients, no matter where you're at. Like, that's just not acceptable. Anyways, that's a topic for another company, another time. But yeah, man, um, things have been going very well on my end. I have just been, I we discussed in the last podcast, I was dieting, dropped about 15 pounds. 
we've been in a reverse diet. We have food up a pretty good amount. I never get to like super high intakes. Jeff, you and I are on a pretty similar intake. Um, whereas I'm about 50 pounds heavier than you. Um, but what I'm at like 375 carbs right now, maintaining very nicely right around 200. So that's been good. Actually including some free meals in that as well. So that's been great. Yeah. Things are going well. Um, we've been taking on a lot of new clients as well. Business has been growing quickly, which is awesome. So I've kind of just had my head down as of late, not much new going on. Um, real quick, I got, I have a question. So you're saying your, your calories were pretty similar to mine. Um, obviously I'm like kind of building right now, but for you, what do you, what do you think that can you, you can attribute that to, I know obviously genetics are going to play a, a massive role in that, but I'm just kind of curious there. Do you think there's anything else, um, that, that might like play a role in that for you? Or do you th- just kind of bring it down to just, that's just how your body responds to that? Man, I would say we could probably go back and forth on metabolisms and how people respond. I would say if we're looking at like more or like less adaptive metabolisms, very much I'm someone where like there has, I don't need very much variance in my calories at all to, so for me, like I have never been able to ramp calories up very high, nor have I ever, like, I'm never like that hungry to the point. Like for me, like typically 375 carbs seems like a ton of food. Whereas on the flip side, so typically like I can maintain pretty easily right around anywhere between 26 and 2,800 calories. But on the flip side, like in a fat loss phase, I can get like the first photo shoot I did, I got shredded eating 2,400 calories the entire time. So it's very much like I just have a very tight range. Whereas at least in my experience, typically what we'll see is like those people that we can reverse diet up super high. Again, they're going to be like hyper responders almost to do a lot more fidgeting, pacing, blinking. On the flip side, at least from what I've seen is typically we're going to have to diet them much more aggressively. Whereas I'm like the exact opposite of that, right? Where it's a very like, okay, well, yes, I can't necessarily eat a ton of food and maintain. I get fat pretty easily. On the flip side, I don't ever have to diet very aggressively and I can just keep losing and losing and losing. So Jeremiah, I'm the exact opposite of you. I have an extremely adaptable metabolism or adaptive metabolism. And for me, you know, to start gaining, like when I've, I've been at my, my peaks in terms of muscle mass, especially when I was uh, competitive, I would have to get up to like 4,200 calories and, you know, six to 700 grams of carbs just to start gaining. Here's the thing though, to get shredded, like those, a lot of like your, my competition photos that was down at like 1800 to 1900 calories. It was extremely low. So I have such a wide range. So when I ramp up, my body automatically starts dissipating energy. So we even see in like the neat literature that when you put people in a thousand calorie surplus for an extended period of time. So generally these studies are eight weeks long, up to 69% of those, 69% of those calories can be dissipated just through subconscious increases in need. That's without any exercise intervention. So people can dissipate on average 690 out of those thousand calories overfeeding. And then if you were to include exercise and some, some other activity steps and energy expenditure, you could just erase that depth or that surplus. However, it's the same thing. Actually, Jeff and I did an episode on, where we touch on the topic of a spendthrift and thrifty metabolisms and those mm-hmm. metabolic phenotypes. And we see that even in fasting studies where there'll be some people that they'll go into a 24 hour fasting period and their RMR and their energy expenditure will drop substantially. However, at the same time, when they give them an over, another overfeeding day, the next day, they'll upregulate their energy expenditure and their, uh, RMR, their resting metabolic rate. But at the same time, there's individuals like yourself that have that thrifty phenotype, which essentially it's a tight range where their body defends. And so they don't have to go too much lower. They can induce a smaller deficit and still lose weight. But then at the same time, if they just do a small surplus, they'll start gaining. But if they go to more of a drastic surplus, even over a continued period of time, even if they titrate up their calories, they are more predisposed 
to gain body fat because they're so far off of what their body's range is for at least calorie balances. Absolutely. And I think it's helpful to understand as well. Like I was talking to one of my clients who's a coach this morning, actually about one of her clients and had started the process. This was a 140 pound woman. They had started the process with a reverse diet and ranked her all the way up to 2,400 calories, right? So eating a pretty considerable amount of food for a 140 pound woman. And she was worried because she was like, Hey, we dropped her into a 20% deficit. So we dropped her like, and nothing happened, right? She's like, hey, for the first four weeks of the diet, like nothing happened. And I've had to take her all the way down to like 1600, right? And typically, again, from what I've seen, like that's very normal. Like almost always for someone who we reverse diet up to pretty high calories, I'll almost always like at the start of a deficit, just be more aggressive. And if anything, we can pull back because almost always like if you just ease into it, it's going to be like, okay, two weeks, we make an adjustment, two weeks, we make another adjustment, and then maybe we're probably seeing progress. Yeah, it's, it's amazing the adaptiveness of, of metabolism. And that's something I've always been interested in. There's actually bodybuilding case studies where they've looked at the resting metabolic rate. And this is all metabolic word chambers. We're looking at things with a hood. And they've seen certain bodybuilders that have this immensely high off-season intake. These are natural competitors. They're under 200 pounds, even in the off-season. And there was one, I believe it was a case study with Pardue, where his resting metabolic rate was 110% of what they expected. So he was 10% over during his... his um off-season phase. However, when he went into a deficit and got into contest shape, when they remeasured his resting metabolic rate, he was 20, 20% suppressed in terms of, we see that there's an adaptive drop in metabolism and generally, you know, adaptive thermogenesis or metabolic adaptation accounts for on the resting metabolic rate between five and 15%. And then we could see up to a three to 5% variance between individuals. And so it's not that drastic, but he was over 20%. So he went from, I believe the, the case study looked at, he was at 110% to begin with. And by the end of the diet, he had went from four 4,000 calories, give or take to under 2000. So he dropped his intake in half. And he went from a resting metabolic rate of 110% of what they would expect for someone of his size to remeasuring it and it being 80% of someone at that reduced body weight size. So it's it's amazing how the metabolism works. And a lot of people get frustrated with that. But I always say, like, you have to play the cards that you're dealt. And we're not, you know, no one is dealt an entirely bad hand. And some people are dealt a better hand than others. But you just have to, if you can get an understanding of metabolism and realize it's not static, and that's why maintenance calories are arranged, and that it's a dynamic and adaptive system, it reacts to what you give it. So you get it with less calories, it's going to downregulate. If you give it more calories, it's going to upregulate. But we cannot control how much it upregulates or downregulates, because that is very genetically predetermined. However, there are things within our control, we can control the amount of muscle mass we have or how much that we put in, you know, our physical activity levels. So how much energy expenditure do we get through steps? And, you know, that's why I'm a big uh, proponent of the energy flux model. And then other things like the thermic effect feeding, what is your food composition? Like, are you utilizing whole food sources that you can leverage a higher thermic effective feeding, a higher protein diet, or are you getting this processed junk, which has about half the thermic effective feeding of unprocessed whole foods. So it's, there are things that are within our control. We can't control our genetics, but there's so many other factors. And even when they look at, um, uh, gene, uh, testing, like a uh, phenotypic, uh, genome testing, they see that your body composition is only 50% determined by your genetics, but that other 50%, a lot of people overlook that they focus so heavily on the genetic aspect that they forget that there's a whole half of the pie. That's all up to us. So I find, you know, a lot of that stuff, if you can get past the self-limiting beliefs of you thinking you have bad genetics, a lot of us don't know our genetics until we put 10 years in the gym. And Jeff and I spoke about that on a podcast that we did specifically on what we've learned through lessons through lifting. And I even said, you know, one of the best lessons that I ever learned was early on a bodybuilder when I wanted to get into competing, I was in high school. 
he told me, give it 10 years. Cause I asked him, do I have the potential to compete? And he goes, how, how do I know you're, you're 16 years old? You know what I mean? He said, put 10 years in the trenches of consistent hard work. I know that sounds like a lot, but think about anything like the 10,000 hour rule or any other aspect, no musician, very few musicians have become excellent overnight. And that can be said about so many aspects, whether you're a professor, an educator, uh, a coach, this is all time in the trenches. It's the law of repeated efforts. And it's, it really is just like in the gym, you get better, the more reps you do, the same thing happens outside of the gym. So if you put in 10 years, you devote yourself to something and you really give yourself a chance to see what you're capable of, of nailing things. Then we have people like Steve Hall from Revive Stronger, who's 10 plus years into, you know, into proper training. And he's really still reaping the rewards of his hard work because he stayed disciplined. Yeah, Steve. Steve's crushing it, man. I love I love watching like Steve's stuff because he he does a great job. But I don't know if you guys get this commonly, but I, I've gotten this recently a couple times from people about like macros and like, hey, can you know I don't need coaching, I just need macros. And it's like, I mean, I can give you macros, but it's like literally like that is not going to do anything. Like you you don't know how your body's going to respond to it, and and it, and um, I don't know. Do you guys do you guys get that normally? Like how how do you normally handle that type of situation? Just explain that to them, hey, or. or so I'm going to be honest with you guys. Um, to me, that's almost like a one-off plan or just like macro coaching. And I don't do that whatsoever. I'm looking at the micronutrient composition. I'm looking at food sourcing. I'm looking at biofeedback. I'm looking at blood work and biometrics. And if someone it just wants that small of a percentage of coaching, I would just rather them just try it on their own. And I honestly, I, I turn those clients away because I realize they're not invested into the coaching process. And whenever I send over a program, anyone that's worked with me will tell you, I have very extensive programs. We're talking on average 20 pages, but sometimes they're 30 pages if need be for the needs of the clientele after I do a needs analysis. But with that being said, I always tell them, this is a base plan. This is my best estimation of what your body needs based on, I give them a very you know long and lengthy intake. And I actually do that specifically for multiple reasons. A, I'm very detail-oriented. And I'm into the nuances and you both know that, but also B, if they're not able to complete that t- intake form, they're probably not the right client for me. And that's fine by all means. But when someone sends me back and it's like half unanswered, I just tell them, listen, maybe where you're at in your life or your goals, it's not suited for the level of coaching that I'm providing because I'm 10 years into this. It's not like I'm, I'm at this basic level where I'm just going to prescribe you macros and a cookie cutter prescription. Cause to me, coaching is about more than just the X's and O's of macros and calories or sets and reps in the gym. That's a cookie cutter approach that it might yield results for 50% of the population. But I work with a lot of complex cases and people that have already tried to maximize their, their, you know, I work with a lot of intermediate and advanced clients. They've already, you know, worked with, you know, I spoke to Jeremiah about this one time on a podcast. I get people to tell me how many coaches they've worked with in the past. And every year I run the analytics on that. So at the end of the year, I run, you know, different things to see what are the average of this? What was the average client length that I had someone? And this past year in 2021, the average person that I was working with had worked with 5.5 coaches. So let's round that up to six. They had experience. And why had it? Why did they come to me? It was because what they had done in the past didn't work. There wasn't enough detail. There wasn't enough uh, attention to detail. And coaching isn't just about the program you provide someone, but the adjustments, the reading of their biofeedback, and the ability to consider both their psychology and their physiology and make a program that's that meets in the middle between what's optimal for their goals and what's practical for their lifestyle. I love that. And and so this is, this is something too, that I want to bring up with you guys and see, kind of get your thoughts on it too. Um, so I had, uh, Martin McDonald on my podcast recently, and he, he had a really interesting episode, like 
a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago or so. And it was kind of like why he thinks women shouldn't balk. And so this kind of goes on the topic of like adaptive metabolisms. He, he kind of made the point that like, he's not a big fan of having females go into like surpluses for building muscle, just because he, he did mention like a, a few things in terms of research that like females just they don't see that like upregulation and neat, like, like guys will like, uh, and, and so I'm just kind of curious to hear your guys' thoughts on that. And if, if that's something that like you commonly also don't do with your female clients as well. And I don't know if you know any research around that and whatnot. So I'm just curious to hear your guys' thoughts. So, so I will hit on the neat research. Cause that's something I, I do know very, very well. Um, I have very infrequently seen any overfeeding literature on females. If you look at anything by Levine or Harris or any of the guys that are known for overfeeding studies, they're often only done in young college age males. And that could just be due to the nature of who signs up. And also, I think from a psychological aspect, how many women really want to bulk when they're in college? They want to stay lean, especially in today's day and age. And I think the only person that could probably coax uh, a good subject population to do a bulking study would be Bill Campbell because now he has his physique uh, enhancement lab. But this has only been the last couple of years. Even when Lauren was there, and we spoke about this on, on my podcast, there really wasn't just female-focused um, research. And up until you know just a, a short while ago, we we're at about a 60-40 dis uh, discrepancy. So 60% of um, resistance training studies, at least 60% was done on males and 40% females. And actually in diet literature, it's actually the opposite. It's 80-20 between females and males. And so, but with the dieting research, what we do see in neat literature, women do downregulate their need expenditure more than men do. So we do see that that is substantial. And even uh, if you look at some of the studies by Rosenbaum and Leibel, people will downregulate their energy expenditure from neat upwards of between at the low end, 200 calories per day. And we also have other studies where they've seen a 500, 500 calorie reduction in total daily energy expenditure. And when they broke down the components of that into what came from your resting metabolic rate, they saw 100 calories came from resting metabolic rate and the other 400 calories of downregulation came entirely from physical activity expenditure. And it was only neat because these individuals were not exercising in the metabolic ward. So that's substantial. Think about it, 400 calories. If we were a guy and we put ourselves in a 500 calorie deficit, that's almost 80%. You know, that's, well, in that case, it was 500 calories that was downregulated. But even if we just considered meat, that downregulation would take away 80% of the deficit we had created. However, think about the relative deficit that that takes away from a female. Most females are not going to be in a 500 calorie deficit because if they started off and their, their maintenance intake was 1800 calories, I'm going to use a, a smaller deficit for them so that they're not at 1300 calories week one of the diet. Um, however, I have seen, here's the thing, I do things a little bit differently. And so when I, I've heard Martin speak on the topic of um, NEAT, but he does it, he differentiates between NEAT and NEPA, which is non-exercise physical activity. He, he completely differentiates between the two and he doesn't consider steps that are done intentionally to be a part of NEAT. So can we say that women don't upregulate meat? That would be on a person-to-person -person basis. But how I do it with my energy flux model is I'm putting more energy into the system, and then I'm also increasing steps so that we're having an upregulation, and they're able to buffer out some of those calories. So in my experience, I have been able to have girl, uh, females, you know, quote-unquote bulker. I have many females that have went into a building phase. I actually put a female that came to me on 30 grams of carbohydrates and pretty much uh, protein-sparing modified fast. Her name's Megan. And within the course of an eight-month building phase, I built her from 30 grams of carbohydrates, and she she was literally on, you know, protein, 120 grams of protein, 30 grams of um, carbohydrates and 40 grams of fat when she came to me. So she was just low fat, low carbs, and just a little bit high protein, but she was about 135 pounds. And I upregulated her to 375 grams of carbohydrates. I believe it between 50 and 60 grams of fat and about 135 grams of protein. And she was leaner than she was when she came to me. 
Now, obviously, that was through the course of revamping her training program. She was doing 50 sets per body part per week. It was just an extreme amount of junk volume. <laughs> so I, I changed everything, her frequency of training. I increased her knee. I, I took her completely off hit cardio because we actually do see in the literature that women do respond worse to hit cardio, which is ironic because so many women are driven towards that. But we also know that as a society, women have much more responsibility, especially if you're a mother or a, a homemaker. So think about the cortisol uh, secretions that happen from hit cardio. It's just inducing more and more fatigue. So then it's taking, you're doing hit classes or they're doing hit cardio and they're taking away from their ability to adapt in the gym. So they're, they have less energy. They have a little less re recovery resources. So they're not building as much muscle and preserving that metabolic rate, especially during a diet. So I don't see the decrease in meat or I don't see um, that they don't upregulate, but I'm also purposely making sure that there's other aspects of my programming that's helping to upregulate that. I'm also leveraging a higher protein diet, which is going to upregulate meat in and of itself. So there are multiple aspects to a program, but I don't doubt that he's seen that in clients that he's worked with. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we take a very similar approach to Brandon, of course, where focusing on the daily step goal is a big piece of it. And I mean, within that as well, we know that if a client is in at least a slight surplus, they're going to be in a more advantageous position to actually build muscle tissue as well, right? right? Muscle protein synthesis is going to be elevated. We're going to experience likely less muscle protein breakdown. So as a whole, like they're going to be in a better position to build. I think it's more or less like, again, if it's like Brandon, you often use the term set and forget. Like if we were just doing that and like, okay, here's your surplus, good luck. Then yes, that probably would go so well, but we're keeping an eye on movement and making sure we're increasing that. We're, we're keeping an eye on rate of gain and adjusting around that. I really, I can understand where he's coming from there, but also I think we're going to leave a lot on the table. Like if for a female client trying to build her best physique, if we're never pushing them into any type of surplus. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, like you said there with, if you're going to do kind of the set, set it and forget it, like that's where you're going to run into trouble. And, and too, like, as you guys, as we all know, like a lot of times when people are not in fat loss phases, that's usually the times where they're not tracking and they're more likely to just kind of say, screw it with what they eat. And that's where you're going to run into trouble. And that's why a lot of people probably shy away from, from building and, and whatnot. So I just want to get your guys kind of thoughts on that to, to hear what you had to say. And, um, Cool. So let's, you guys ready to dive into the questions? Absolutely. Let's do it. Cool. Um, so I'm going to start with this one because I think this one will be pretty short. Uh, so shoulder press and front raise, are these working the muscles in a short or lengthened position? Yeah, typically a shoulder press. I mean, so if we look at a shoulder press, typically it is going to be the movement that's going to be hardest towards the bottom of the rep, um, towards the top of the rep, then the movement is going to be a bit easier. So typically like a shoulder press is going to be more of a lengthened overload, whereas typically uh front raise as your, as the weight gets further from the pivot point, basically your shoulder joint, that movement is going to get harder. So typically that will overload the short position for the front delt a bit more. Now we can adjust that somewhat. Like if we were doing, I mean, still no matter what a front raise is going to be mostly like a, um, a mostly short and overload. If we were doing it on like an incline bench, for example, we were like leaning back on an incline, we get a little bit more like mid range and short and overload there. But no matter what, it's going to be like, I don't think we need to overthink this too much. I would typically say, yeah, like front raise is going to be more short and overload. Typically, like uh, some any type of press, like any type of like a chest press, a shoulder press, et cetera, is going to be more like mid range to leap and overload. I think the easiest way to, to break this down is even to look at it from, you know, I agree 100% with Jeremiah, but to really look at um, even any body part, 
uh, any movement for a body part. If we really look at most of the popular compound movements, we're looking at a squat, it's a length and overload. If we're looking at a bench press, it's a length and overload. If we're looking at an RDL, it's a length and overload. So generally with our compound, uh, more complex movements, they're going to be uh, stressing that length and movement or that length and portion of the range. Whereas more of your isolation type exercises are going to be stressing more of the shortened position. So you guys can even, I'm not saying that's a one size fits all, you know, prescription, but in generalities, if you really, you have some miss or you have um, confusion around resistance profiles and resistance curves, you can kind of think about it in that capacity. Well, cool. yeah, I, I don't, ha I don't have anything to add to that. I, sometimes I get a little, uh, like without, like, I have a good idea of lengthen and shorten, but sometimes I'm just like, honestly, I, I don't know. I got asked that and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to save that for tomorrow. Cause I know I knew one of you two guys would, would know. Uh, I like, and, and even just think about like, even just from a conceptual basis, think where you're feeling more of the stress, more of the stimulus. So if you feel something like in the squat, you're not feeling most of the stimulus when you're at the top of the rep, you know what I mean? At the bottom, when you're in either, you know, I would say full range of motion, but you're at least at parallel or breaking parallel, you're feeling more stress stress and stretch on your quadriceps and the rest of the muscles involved. So in that think stretch, think lengthen, think contracted, think shortened. So the same thing can be with a bicep curl. If you're doing a incline bench, you're getting more of that sh stress on that stretch position. So that's a lengthened overload movement or even um, a behind the back cable curl or a Bayesian curl um, with a cable it's going to be more, it's going to put more strength on that bicep in that lengthened position. Whereas when we're in a regular cable curl to the front and you just have the cable here, you're getting more into a shortened position. You could fully shorten your bicep and you're feeling more stress at the top of the motion. So bottom, think lengthen, think top shortened. For, for whatever reason, the shoulder is the one that just kind of confuses me a little bit there um, with that. Jer Jeremiah, I know you, you had something you were, you were going to uh, say on top of that. Yeah. I mean, there basically we can think like, the closer the weight gets to the primary joint that is acting on, or this, and this could get kind of overcomplicated. So, but like there, like as the weight, the weight, like as we press up, we'll get closer being stacked over our shoulder joint, right? Like as it gets closer there, we're going to be a little bit stronger. The movement will be a little bit easier as it gets further away. Again, it's going to be a little bit more challenging, which is kind of like why, like when the shoulder press, as we're pressing overhead, it is going to get easier as that weight gets close to our shoulder. Whereas with that, with that front raise, like as we raise the weight, the weight's going to be getting further from our body. That lever arm is longer. So that's going to be a little bit harder. I also think with the lengthen versus shorten, I talk about this a lot. It's one of my favorite things in Nerd Adelberg. But I do think that people might take this to the extent of overthinking it a little bit. Where like, hey, the meat and potatoes of our programming should be mostly lengthened overload. That's going to be typically what's going to stimulate the most hypertrophy. And then we're going to kind of sprinkle in short overload movements on occasion for like muscles that we maybe wanted to make a bit more of our priority. And we could definitely say like over time, it's probably going to be most beneficial to train them to stress the tissue through its entire contractile range, which would include like some length and some shorten. But again, really like if we have a good foundation of length and overload movements, and then we sprinkle in some shorten overload movements that um, specific to those muscle groups that you really want to prioritize after we ensure we've hit that foundation of like these lengthened movements, we're going to be in a good place. So I also think that this is like, cause I've also seen that a lot lately where it's like, Hey, we're kind of overthinking to this the point where like, let's just show up, like choose some movements we know are effective and train hard, which typically isn't like, I love the nerd out over this stuff, but I do think it can be taken a little bit too far. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. I, uh, I definitely want to dive into N1's biomechanics course. That's, that's going to be next on my list here soon, because I definitely like 
out of all the questions I get, that's the one that like, I, I just know the least about, but I feel like I'm getting more and more of those types of questions. And, and it's just, it's just a good thing to obviously learn. But like you said, I think some people take it too far and like overthink these things. And it's like, you just got to freaking like, you're focusing on too much. You just need a freaking train right now. But again, I think that at some point you do need to, to dial things in. So um, I don't, do you guys have anything else to add uh, to that one? I don't cool. Know. All right. So uh, let's go to the next one. So I've lost 12 pounds. What are your recommendations for maintaining this weight loss? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, congrats on losing 12 pounds. That's dope. Um, I also know a girl who asked this question has the same kind of dog as me. So <laughs> shout out to my fellow bull terrier on this question. Absolutely. So yeah, within this, Brandon and I also recorded a great podcast on this recently. So I would go check out that. It's called How to Maintain a Lean Life or How to Stay Lean Year Round, I believe was the title of it. Yes, um, among other sister podcasts with Brandon. But yeah, really here, I think a couple important things. One thing that I like to stress is we don't want to look at this as like, okay, those are the foods I eat on my diet. And then the foods that I eat off the diet are completely different, right? Typically, one of the things that I like to stress to clients is, hey, no matter what, we want to try to like more or less eat the same foods year round and just increase the quantities of said foods. Now, when you're in a surplus, like there's a little bit more room for things like free meals. There's a little bit more room for like more quote unquote flexible foods and to be able to enjoy yourself a bit more there. But like as a, as a whole, we want to make sure we're really continuing to prioritize food quality, prioritize getting in plenty of micronutrients, foods, make sure you are continuing to prioritize your protein. Um, and again, really more than anything, understand that maintaining does very much still take effort, right? And that's very much like within all things, it's always like trade-offs, right? Where no matter what, like if you go out to eat pizza with your friends, for example, you're going to want to smash like an entire pizza, right? We're never going to want to have to stop at two pieces, but even like in maintenance, there is still going to be some element of moderation that's required, right? And just accepting that as the trade-off for like, okay, this is kind of the rent that I pay, so to speak. Like this element of moderation is the rent I pay to live in the physique that I feel amazing in year round. That's going to have to just be part of it, right? And there's not necessarily a way, there's not like a hack or a way around that. Um, continuing to prioritize, as I mentioned before, protein is going to be a huge piece of this, making sure that we're getting a decent bolus of protein across most of our meals to help keep us satiated. And then I would really continue to prioritize steps as well. When we look at weight maintenance, one of the most important pieces of that is going to be keeping your physical or keeping your knee levels high. So I would continue to make your steps a priority. Really, those would be my biggest action steps. More or less, it's continue to do the things that have allowed you to be successful so far, continue to resist and strain. Again, understand, yes, you can eat more food, but again, try to keep the your food, your food selection relatively similar. Those would really be my biggest takeaways there. Yeah, so honestly, this is the question uh, that I get most commonly asked. And this is actually why Jeremiah and I did a full podcast on this topic. So I'm going to summarize some of the things I talked about, but I'll, I'll go off on some other things to provide you guys with, with some other nuggets. Um, but really when it comes to maintaining weight loss, I like to focus on three fundamental areas. Now there are 20 that I could go through, but obviously we don't have that much time in the podcast. So really what I'm looking at is their nutrition, you know, a client's nutrition, their physical activity levels, and their habits around self-monitoring. And when it comes to the diet, I always say I like to anchor the, the diet with high, high protein intake. And the reason for that is because protein is so essential for maintaining fat loss. Um, like Jeremiah said, it's the most satiating macronutrient. So you're going to get a better fullness effect from protein than you are from carbohydrates or fat. It also has the th highest thermic effect of feeding out of every macronutrient. So with that, for every, say, 100 calories that you get from protein, you're going to net out between 70 and 80, whereas 
with something like a full fat source or a full carbohydrate source, that only has a thermic effect of feeding between zero and 3%. And carbohydrates is between five and 10%. So you're not getting as much for, for calorie wise. If you have a small calorie budget to work with, to really maintain fat loss, you're getting more bang out of your buck calorically from protein in and of itself. And then from a muscle retention aspect, we really want to be able to, when we're in a lowered body weight, we're at a lower body fat percentage. We want to not only maintain muscle mass, but we want to give ourselves the best chance of increasing muscle mass because that's going to increase not only your total daily energy expenditure, but also your resting metabolic rate because lean body mass, which encompasses um, you know muscle tissue is the biggest determinant of someone's lean body mass. And we even see in research that 69% of the reason that two people of the same body weight have a discrepancy or a difference in their resting metabolic rate is due to their level of muscle mass. So almost over two thirds of that could be that you could be 120 pounds right now. And you could have a friend that's 120 pounds, but if they have significantly more muscle mass than you, they could have a much higher resting metabolic rate because of that muscle tissue. So throughout the course of their day, they're burning more at rest, even seated um, or even laying down, they're having um, a much higher ability to burn calories without doing anything. So this is passive burning. You know what I mean? It's, it's just, it's a huge, it's the best investment that you can make. And then also has the lowest likelihood of converting into body fat. So often if I have a client that we have to keep them, it's not that we have to keep them at a lowered intake, but they really prefer the body fat percentage that they're at, but they're struggling with hunger. We can leverage protein. We can use it as a lever. And it also has the least amount of susceptibility to be converted into body fat, especially from an overfeeding perspective. Another thing I like to look at is energy density, which is essentially how many calories per gram does this food provide you with? And we see in all the literature that lower calorie density is linked to better weight loss. So we're talking about things like with higher volumes. So your fruits, your vegetables, your lean proteins, these are going to provide you more food volume so that you're able to get a better fullness effect than higher, you know, calorie items. So you're getting more fullness for less calories. So that's going to help you stay more adherent, feel fuller. And it also has the advantage that you have to realize your body and your brain doesn't perceive calories. It doesn't see the amount of food on your plate and perceive, oh, this has a thousand calories as compared to, you know, this cheeseburger has a thousand calories compared to this chicken salad has 500 calories. It perceives food volume in your stomach that presses against the gastric receptors in your stomach and signal to your brain, hey, I'm full. So if you take a cheeseburger that's calorically dense or a, a bar of chocolate that's really calorie dense and you eat that and has a thousand calories, but it doesn't provide you any volume, any fullness, any water content, any fiber content, it's going to induce less satiety than would be a big chicken salad that was half the amount of calories, but had double the volume. Um, then also I like looking at the food quality, but also the processing and the palatability of that. Because we see in research studies that just food processing can alter the thermic effect of feeding. So they've done studies where they've looked at the same type of food. So the same type of meal, they, they did a sandwich. And in one sandwich, it was all through process. It was processed cheese and processed bread. And that had a thermic effect of approximately 10%. Now, when they did you know, unprocessed whole foods. So it was naturally, you know, um, dairy source cheese, as well as whole grain bread that was homemade. They saw a 19.9%. So roughly double the thermic effect of feeding from that. And palatability also influences how much someone is going to eat. So making sure that the majority of your intake doesn't come from highly processed foods will help you moderate your intake and lower your likelihood of overconsuming calories. Because we even have studies that look directly at processed versus unprocessed foods. And this was a study done by Kevin Hall, and they showed that when people ate to satiation, so they ate to fullness, they put them on a crossover trial. So they did two weeks of unprocessed foods, uh, you know, unprocessed whole foods versus two weeks of processed, you know, refined, you know, junk food essentially. 
And they matched everything within the study, protein match, sodium match, carbohydrate match, fat match. They even did um, where they matched fiber intake. So everything was equivalent except the level of processing. And in the highly processed condition, subjects ate 508 calories above, I believe it was 508 calories. I know it was over 500 calories more per day and gained a kilogram or 2.2 grams or 2.2 pounds of fat as compared to in the unprocessed condition, they actually lost body fat and body weight. So these are all, you know, approaches that can help with fat loss and also help with the maintenance of your fat loss. And then from there, you know, Jeremiah hit on it because, you know, we've done a million podcasts on, on me and on energy flux, you know, there is incredibly strong evidence that high levels of physical activity increase your probability of successful weight loss. And we see that in multiple trials. We see probably the best evidence of that is the National Weight Controlled Registry, which is essentially a 10-year follow-up study where they look at the habits of successful dieters. And the majority of those that have lost weight, a considerable amount of weight in this trial, you know, they have lost at least 30 pounds and kept it off for three or more years. But the average participant in the National Weight Control Registry has lost 30 kilograms. So 66 pounds of weight and have kept it off for three to five years. And that's an incredibly successful rate because if you actually look at dietary recidivism statistics, within three years of dieting, most people have regained all that they've lost. 95% of people have regained all they lost. So, you know, low levels of physical activity will cause you to have an inability to properly regulate your appetite and satiety signals. So we see that those with higher levels of activity, which is where I speak on often about energy flux regulating appetite, it's going to help you keep your energy intake more in line with your energy expenditure so that you, you stay at calorie balance. It keeps you in that regulated zone. And then the last thing I like to look at, and this is something I really focus on with clients, but even those that just message me on Instagram, what is something I could do to help maintain my results? I often ask them, what did you do to get there? So they, they track their food, they track their body weight, but all of a sudden, a lot of the positive habits that they had during the diet, they discard and they go back to living the life they, they had both food-wise, but also habit-wise. And here's the thing. We should look at diet not as this short-term goal that gets you to a destination. It's not this 12-week quick fix because if you take it where you approach it in that fashion, you're going to go right back to where you were previously. You know what I mean? If what you were doing previously didn't serve you to get the results you were looking for, why would you go back to them? But if there were certain key components that were positive habits, starting your day with a daily walk, eating high protein, you know, having adequate fiber in your diet to make sure you're satiated and you're decreasing hunger. If you had all those things in check and they helped you in the maintenance of your weight loss, you should be utilizing some of those same techniques. So I'm big into tracking and monitoring things objectively. And so we see successfully in, you know, in my own practice, but also in the research that daily self-weighing is linked to a high likelihood of maintaining weight loss and then self-monitoring of food intake in some form. And that doesn't mean that you have to track calories and macros to the exact gram. This can simply be weighing your food, you know, portioning out your meals and following a structure of meals and times each day using a food journal or diary. And this could just be a mechanism for increasing your awareness and your around your food habits and behaviors. And just realize you don't have to be perfect. You're increasing calories, but if you could just be more aware and even journal, like sometimes I'll have people that I don't have them tracking everything on my fitness pal or in chronometer. But what I have them do is when they feel the likelihood of overeating or they do overeat, I just want them to journal down. What were the situ What was the circumstances of the situation? Were you stressed? What time of the day was it? Because I'll tell you, honestly, I've been coaching for close to 10 years. I've never had someone binge or fall off their diet at 8 a.m. I've never had them do it at breakfast. It's always after a long day at work when they're unprepared, they haven't had anything at home. They went to go cook a dinner or they, they were on their way home and they saw something that looked tasty and they said, listen, I don't have anything at home. I've had a super stressful day, you know, and they looked for comfort food. So if you guys can just be more aware of that, it's not that you can never fall off. 
but it's about being able to look at things objectively and say, all right, I don't have to be perfect, but I have to aim for progress. And I've made so much progress thus far that I don't want to lose, you know, a step on that. So just being more aware and implementing things more into your, your daily lifestyle and making this a lifestyle because diet comes from the Greek word dieta, which actually means way of life. And a lot of people within our society have isolated diet to be this small compressed period of time that gets you to a goal, whereas it should be a part of your lifestyle. I, uh, I just want to throw this out there. That, that's a good point you bring up. You never hear about people like overeating, like at eight, 8 AM. It's like you said, it's always, always later in the day. That's, you know, it, it, it like makes sense, but something that I've never actually really thought about. Um, I'm not really going to add like anything extra to this. I just kind of want to hit home on like some points that you guys made just to kind of get this uh, ingrained in people's head. But I definitely think the neat side of things, like making sure you keep your physical activity levels up post diet, I think is super important. I know um, a lot of James Krieger stuff that he's written on this is it he's, shown that like the, the, re- the research shows that like these people that, that they'll see, they don't necessarily see like a huge downregulation in their uh, RMR. Like you will see that a little bit, but it's mostly from me, right. When they, when they lose that weight, that they, they see a big decrease. So like making sure you stay active is, is, is just super important um, during this time. Um, and, and again, making sure you're hitting your steps. Um, I, I think again, too, like the tracking side of things, like the, the monitoring of the body weight, I think that is super important you do have to be careful there because the mindset towards it's going to be a little bit different because you're used to like, when you weigh in, you're, you're, you kind of get addicted to seeing it like trend down. You do kind of have to have a mental shift there to where it's more like you have to be okay with it staying the same. And and if you're going to be eating a little bit more food, you have to be okay with it, like slightly going up. Um, and, and this is going to hit on my next point in a second, but that's where I think having that support and a coach and somebody helping you through that process can be super important. But the, the body weight thing I think is super important because I'm sure you guys have seen this happen where, uh, you hear somebody that lost weight and then I've had clients in the past do this to where like they've, they've lost weight and then they like had a bad day and then they don't want to trap. They don't want to weigh in for a little bit. And the next thing you know, they don't weigh in for a couple of weeks and now their weight's up 10 pounds or whatever it may be. Right. That's a bit extreme, but you do see that happen a lot. And if, if a client is doing that, I know for sure people that are doing this on their own are certainly doing that. And so I think, you know, making sure that you still, like you said, monitor. And then again, even with the nutrition side of things, like monitoring something that doesn't necessarily have to be your calories and macros, but, but something, man, like that's kind of what I did this after this fat loss phase is I was, wasn't tracking in my fitness pal, but like for protein, I was making sure I was getting enough protein in because for me, like protein is going to be something that I'll let slip if I don't track it or pay attention to it. So I'll, I'll weigh it out, make sure I'm hitting that. But even like your like tasty foods, man, that's the one that I feel like people need to, because those are so easy to like, especially post diet, like you're just prone to want to eat that type of food because you're hungry from fat loss and that food's just going to taste extra good. If you're going to have some type of like tasty food, you know, calorie dense food, like I think those are super important to like still have some you need to monitor that in some way and like potentially just like weighing it out on food scale, like just the tasty foods, right? Like you're not, you don't necessarily need to weigh out like your fruit or veggies or like something that is going to be much tougher to overeat, but things are going to be easy to overeat. I think is super important to um, weigh that out. But I would say again, just be really careful with highly palatable foods. Like, like Brandon said, like, like Jeremiah said, but again, I think the support side of things is important too. I know that that was one thing that James put in his like thing that helped people maintain weight loss long-term was some having some type of support, like obviously we're going to, we're always going to kind of, um, preach having a coach, but even just having any other type of support, whether it's somebody that is going through the same thing as you, or just like a a community of people that are kind of living a healthy lifestyle, I think is is super important there. But just to kind of sum that up, I think that it's, you need to make sure that you still place out of, you still, just because you're not on fat loss, I just be careful with getting in that trap of like, Oh, don't fat loss. Now I'm just going to do whatever I want. Like you still need to monitor 
post-diet and um, just realize that you are going to be more prone to weight gain following that post-diet period, just because your body's going to want to regain some of that weight that you, that you lost. So just be aware and, and just make sure you um, uh, take that part seriously as, as well too. Um, Jeff, cool. before we move on, I actually just want to hit on something that I'm really glad that you touched on weight loss maintenance. A lot of people have this uh, misconception of what weight loss maintenance is. And it's saying at the exact low point that you were at when your glycogen depleted, like think about it. If you just finish a diet guys, you're, you have low glycogen because you didn't have a lot of carbohydrates. You don't have a lot of fuel in the system. So just even the fact of increasing carbohydrates, even if you bump your calories up 400 and you take in hundred grams of carbohydrates for that hundred grams, you're at least carrying in three to four grams of water. So let's go with four grams. And so that's 500 grams. That's hundred grams of carbohydrates plus 400 grams of water just stored in muscle glycogen. So right then there, you have 500 grams of added scale weight, but that's a 1.1 pound. So you're going to see an increase on the scale. Even if you just bumped up your just your calories by 400 in one day, you know, one pound would be 3,500 calories. So obviously if you only bumped it up 400, but you're up 1.1 pounds on the scale, it's theoretically impossible that you stored all that. And so what a lot of people fail to realize, if you actually look into the weight loss literature in weight loss maintenance, weight loss maintenance isn't defined as maintaining your body weight. Successful weight loss maintenance in the literature is defined as a weight change of less than 3% of your body weight from its baseline. So we actually see that. So for instance, just for easy math, say someone's 150 pounds, that would mean that you could be up to between 150 to 154.5 pounds. Yeah, that should be the right math. Yeah, you got so it. between 150 and 154.5 pounds, and that is your normal weight. That is weight loss maintenance. That is successful. And we know that weight changes, especially with a female, due to the menstrual cycle, due to water weight fluctuations from stress and cortisol elevations, from just gastric, um, you know, the residue in your gut. If you had a high fiber day or had extra fruits and veggies the day before, your water intake, your sodium intake, there are so many things that come into play. So don't get so fixated on that number. When I say daily scale weight, it is so that it doesn't get away from you. So that if you have a high calorie day the day before, or you overeat, you see what the scale weight is. It gives you just a conscious reminder. Listen, I'm not defined by my scale weight, but it's giving me an indication. Hey, I went into far, too far of a surplus this week. Let me reel it back in. It's just a nice reminder because a lot of times with anything in life, whether it's a fat loss diet or it's building muscle, we gain momentum, but the same thing happens with weight gain. And that's why we see people that all of a sudden, you know, a week after their diet, they're up you know, five, 10% of their body weight. And all of a sudden, because they didn't stay on top of it, didn't track it and they didn't keep aware, they're like, what, what happened? They jump right in back into a deficit and they repeat these yo-yo cycles. And if they had just been a little bit more aware and had tracked every day or every other day, it would have been easier to pull back the reins on and say, all right, I've, you know, I've had some tasty meals. I've enjoyed my time post-diet. I've had some free meals like you did, Jeff. And I've been, now let me regulate things back. I think, I think it's like you just, for some people for, and again, it, it's, I feel like it's a mental thing when it comes to that, like weighing in and like being scared of seeing it go up, but it's just like, you almost just with anything, like the longer you let it go, like, it's like, I remember like back in the day when like, I'd like go out on the weekend, this was we would go on like, like a weekend trip or something like that. And like, you'd like not like, I didn't make a lot of money. So like, you didn't want to look at your bank account, but it's like, you had to like, you just had to rip the bandaid off and like, look at it at some point to see like the damage you did, you know, at, at some point, I feel like it's the same, the same type of thing. Like you just ha- kind of have to rip that bandaid off and just, and just do it because otherwise, you know, you could fall into, you're, you're just not monitoring. You don't know what's, what's going on there. I love that you said that because, um, you know, the same mentality, just like, you know, you're, your a credit card charges count on the weekend. So do your calories. So keep yeah. that in mind, you know? <laughs> I love it. Jeremiah, anything you need to add to that, man? 
I don't think so, dude. That just was reminding me of going to PCBRs for our uh, spring break one year. I went to into the trip with like $150 and I was doing that and not checking my bank account. And after the first day, I remember I went to get cash out and it was just your cards declined. But anyways, that's not really relevant to this. But yeah, definitely recommend checking your bank accounts and your scale weight. Hey, even when you go to PCB, the the, uh, the the charges count too, just like calories count there too. <laughs> um, cool. Let's go on to this next one. So can you build muscle following a keto diet? Uh, Brandon, I know this was kind of, I think this was the one you got. So have you seen Yeah. So I actually, I, I followed up with this individual because I really wanted to know where they were coming from because can you build muscle following a ketogenic diet? Absolutely. You know what I mean? But I wanted to know, are you trying to maximize muscle building? Are you utilizing a ketogenic diet? So really his question was, I hear a lot of, um, you know, debates back and forth about some people that say you can maximize muscle on a ketogenic diet. And those are in the keto crowd or in the carnivore crowd where they say you don't need carbohydrates. That was really what the question was. Do I need carbohydrates to build muscle or can I just take a high fat, low carbohydrate, moderate protein approach? And here's the thing. What we know about ketogenic diets is that they're useful in terms of dropping body fat. And there's multiple lines of research that show that. However, they also show that as long as calories and protein are equated, there is no advantage to utilizing ketogenic diets for the the process of fat loss. So if you wanted to use it for fat loss, it's equivalent. It's equivocal to a high carb, low, low fat diet. And actually there's a meta-analysis by, by Kevin Hall, which shows now keep, take this with a grain of salt that a high fat or high carb, low, low fat diet is slightly better or more advantageous for fat loss. That's just what they see when they did a meta-analysis about 32 trials, I believe. However, the same has not been seen when comparing a high fat versus a high carb diet for maximizing muscle growth. And this is something that's only come into the research within the last couple of years and something I've been digging into because I, I tried a ketogenic diet myself. I saw that I did it both in a deficit, which I obviously lost body fat because I maintained the calorie deficit. And then I also tried it in a gaining phase one year. And I just saw a couple of drawbacks. First of all, I felt like I had no gas in the tank. Like I couldn't train to the same max. Like I was u- used to utilizing a high carb approach. I did for everyone out there. I did become keto adapted. I was on a keto diet for three months straight. Um, so I did become uh, keto adapted. However, even within, you know, obviously the first couple of weeks I felt terrible. That's just what it is. But I also noticed that I didn't have that top end gear. I didn't have that last gear to really push, especially glycolytic activity, like bodybuilding work. I didn't have the volume tolerance. My recovery was a little bit downregulated. I wasn't getting pumps to the gym. And although pumps aren't, aren't directly linked to muscle growth, cellular swelling is. And so you're not volumizing your muscles as much. So I was flat. And then I also noticed that once my calories had to keep building because I do have an adaptive metabolism, it was really hard. I was starting to throw oil on things and it was just, it wasn't really a palatable diet, to be honest with you. Like initially when people think keto, they're thinking like steaks and and avocado and you can only eat so much of that stuff. And there is some literature that shows that there is an appetite suppressing effect to being in ketosis, especially when you're in a surplus. So there actually was a meta-analysis done in 2021. So just last year, and they looked at, the effects on body composition from combining both resistance training with a ketogenic diet. And the reason that this is important is because most of the trials we have on ketogenic diets compared to non-ketogenic diets are done A, in obese populations, and B, only looking at fat loss. So in this case, they took all the studies, they did. Thir- they looked at 13 randomized control trials, and they analyzed the effects that this approach had on body composition outcomes, including body, like total body mass, so your body weight, your fat-free mass, and then also your fat mass. And what they found was that those who use a ketogenic diet with resistance training lost body mass, so they lost body weight, but over a third of that body weight actually came from losing fat-free mass. And so they lost muscle mass in the process. And so that could be somewhat from water, but it also could be because they weren't able to progress their training. And the reason I say that is because 
we have most of the studies that look at a ketogenic diet combined with resistance training. Um, you know, in, in general, when we look at resistance training plus a dietary intervention aimed at building muscle, we see the opposite. You know, generally when you put a dietary intervention, high protein and a diet control, uh, a diet controlled with resistance training, we see an increase in, in lean body mass. We see an increase in fat-free mass, but in this, we did not see that, you know, in this study in, or in this meta-analysis in particular. And then we also have other studies that have looked at ketogenic diets and then compared to a more balanced diet containing, um, you know, so a carb-based diet compared to a ketogenic diet head-to-head and we've seen that they have in the high carb diet, they have significant increases in strength and performance outcomes. However, they don't see the same increases. They actually don't see any significant increases in strength on those utilizing the ketogenic diet. So we have to think about mechanistically, why is this happening? Because a lot of people will say, you know, we have a lot of claims within the industry and a lot of people will go on anecdotes. So they'll look at a pro bodybuilder that utilized the ketogenic diet. And they'll say, well, he's able to build muscle, but he could be the outlier. So we have to look at what does the research say about the averages? So what does this apply to the majority of people? And so mechanistically, if you just think about a ketogenic diet, when you transition into a ketogenic diet, your body starts to rely more on fat as fuel than it does on carbs. And so you're actually going to downregulate your ability to utilize carbs for fuel during training. So you become worse at carbohydrate metabolism. And this is because you downregulate what's called the activity of what's called the PDH enzyme, which is P-hyruge dehydrogenase. I can never say that word, but it's pretty much, it's a gatekeeper to glycolysis and glycolysis is carbohydrate metabolism. So this is the enzyme that breaks down glycogen for energy. And we need this in all levels, in all high level activities. So resistance training, especially, we're going to need carbohydrate metabolism. It's an anaerobic activity. So that's our body's preferred fuel source. And so the interesting thing is that a lot of times people will point out to, you know, well, if it's a lower intensity activity, we could utilize fats for fuel. But even when they've done, you know, if you guys are familiar with Louise Burke, she's a phenomenal researcher. She's done um, studies on race walking, which is an interesting sport to say the least. But if you actually look at it, she had something called the Supernova Project. And I know this because I worked with uh, a few endurance athletes over the years and specifically ones that were doing triathlon training. And then I also had one that started doing race walking. He had been a former a long distance runner. He had some knee issues and he decided to transition from marathons to rate long distance race walking. And so he had brought up the ketogenic diet. So I started looking into it. And even when they did that, they actually showed that um, the ketogenic diet was, um, I guess it performed worse than the high carb diet and the periodized carbohydrate diet. So even though it was a low intensity activity, because think about it, it's race walking, like they're moving fast, but they're still, it's a low intensity activity. The ketogenic diet group was the only one out of those studies that saw a decrease in performance. So it isn't just high intensity activity or exercise that gets impaired by ketogenic diets. And that's for a multitude of reasons. Like if you just think about it, like you don't have the fuel that we need to build muscle. That's the first thing. Also, it may be harder to maintain a surplus, especially if your gain, your goal is to gain muscle. This person was intermediate. He had been training, he said six years. So he's in that intermediate range. He had a decent amount of muscle mass. So if you're looking to maximize muscle, you know, you're going to need at least a slight surplus, but due to the appetite suppressing effect that some experience with a high fat approach, it could limit your ability to keep that. Another thing, like I said, it causes that down regulation in the enzyme that's, that's responsible for carbohydrate metabolism. So if you get into, if you decide to carb load or you decide to have a high carb day because you want to replenish glycogen storage, your body and your muscles are not going to be able to um, utilize those properly. And then even from like a more mechanistic you know, side, we see that in high fat diets, 
we see a reduce or a reduction in the activation of the mTOR complex, which is responsible for muscle protein synthesis. So now think about it. Muscle growth is just the balance. You need to be in a positive protein balance. So you need your levels of muscle protein synthesis to exceed your levels of muscle protein uh, breakdown. But how do you do that? You do it through high protein intake and then carbohydrates help with that because carbs are going to increase insulin secretion, which reduces muscle protein breakdown which is part of that muscle building process because if you have high protein synthesis, but you have high protein breakdown, you're just at a net. You're not at a positive protein balance. So you want to be able to lower the catabolic effects of muscle protein breakdown by utilizing something that's going to secrete insulin. And then you want higher levels of muscle protein synthesis. And the other thing, just from my perspective, and I've also worked with countless clients that have reverberated the same thing is think about just the composition of the diet in and of itself. Like if you're in a surplus, you're going to need to eat more food, but now you have more limitations on your food options. You have, and then from another perspective, you have a reduction in fiber intake. So now your bowel movements are not going to be as, as healthy and frequent. Um, it's going to eliminate a wide variety of healthy food sources like your fruits, your grains, your vegetables. And so there's a lot of both muscle building decrements as well as overall. So I'm not saying that you can't build muscle on a ketogenic diet, but for this person in particular, they had just asked me, can you build you know, muscle on a ketogenic diet? Yes, absolutely. If you keep high protein intake, and that's another myth, myth about ketogenic diets. A lot of people say that you cannot build, or you cannot stay in ketosis over 1.5 grams per kilogram. Actually, we have research studies that are over two grams per kilogram, and you still stay in ketosis because ketosis is more generated by how little carbohydrates and insulin secretion you have in comparison to the rest of your diet. So I'm not saying you could utilize four grams per kilogram, like in some of Jose Antonio's studies, but anytime you have very low insulin, you will produce ketones. So one of the best ways to get into quote unquote ketosis is to fast. That's a no ingestion of any food. So it's not that you can't build muscle on a ketogenic diet, but if your goal, like in this person's specific case is to maximize your ability to build muscle, most of the evidence we have suggests that utilizing a ketogenic diet and excluding carbs is just not the way to go, especially right. because muscle growth is such like a training dependent process. Like think about it. If you can't maximize your, if you're utilizing a dietary approach that doesn't maximize your training performance and your ability to fuel that process, you're not going to be able to get the most in your performance in the gym and recover most adequately out of it. Yeah, no, those, those were all great points, man. Uh, real quick, Jer uh, Jeremiah, before I was going to let you, you go real quick. I just wanted to, I, I think it is important to like, kind of, cause I, even I get confused by this, like in, in you kind of brought it up, Brandon, but like keto, like I feel like there's like different ways to like do keto as well too, right? It's like, is it like, I, I have heard it where it's like just super high fat and like protein low too, but you know, at the same time, like you said, I think that that's obviously going to hurt the muscle building process if protein's obviously super low. So uh, you're saying that you, in this- So there is misconception. So here's the thing. If you look at keto, uh, ketogenesis, so the process of getting into ketosis, if you look at it from um, like an actual research perspective, it's defined by two things. You need to have at least 0.5 millimolars of ketones in your blood. And also you need to be generally for the average person, you need to be under 50 grams of carbohydrates per day to reach that state. And then the majority of your calories will be contained by carbohydrate or by fat rather. And so generally they'll say over at least over 70%. So sometimes it's a split of about, you know, 75, 20, you know, 75% fat, 20% protein, and then 5% carbohydrates. Sometimes it's 70% fat, 20% protein, 10% carbohydrates. Um, but generally it's over 70% of your calories from fat. So it's a vast majority from fat, but you can technically get in ketosis by being in a fast. So that's zero macro, you know, 0% of any yeah. macronutrient, but also the other component is a lot of ketogenic proponents will say, 
you need to be under 1.5 grams per kilogram. But here's the thing, that's based on mechanistic research done on inactive populations, meaning that they're not burning through any of their carbohydrate storage or their glycogen store, or they're, uh, they're not burning through anything else. And so when we actually look into the research, there's multiple studies. There's actually a study by Burke who, it, it's not the same study I just cited, but I know she did a study on comparing ketogenic diets and they were in ketosis. Keep in mind, these are high level athletes that are obviously burning through a ton of glycogen, but they were in ketosis up to, I believe it was 2.5 or 2.7 grams per pound of protein or per kilogram of protein. So with that, you can be on higher protein intakes, but generally people will keep it at two or below. And even like Menno Henselman's, I know he recommends between 1.6 and 1.8 during ketosis. So you're right in that range of what's good for, for maintaining muscle mass, but it's, you still don't have the carbohydrate storage. And we even see in studies like Jeremiah and I did a whole podcast on pre-workout nutrition. And we actually see in research, and it's both from a physiological and a psychological perspective, that the lack of pre-workout carbohydrates do have decrements in performance. It could be a psychological factor because you're not getting the same satiety. You're not having the same glucose availability. But we even see in literature on um, you know, uh, the female athlete triad that low energy availability or low glucose availability is linked towards them feel, you know, experiencing uh, hypothalamic amenorrhea. So remember, we have to think about what else do these macronutrients do? They don't just provide fuel, but also carbohydrates are our number one way to signal leptin into the hypothalamus. So there's all these different things. Think about the cortisol suppression that happens with, with carbohydrates. That's not to say, hey, listen, if you want to just gain a little bit of muscle, by all means, you could do a ketogenic diet. But when you want to maximize, at least having a, a percentage of your intake from carbohydrates, a sufficient intake, I would say over 100 grams at least, because we know the brain needs, you know, the brain is the reliant fuel source is on. Um, it relies on glucose as a fuel source. It can use ketones, but it's a secondary fuel source that it doesn't prefer. Yeah, I don't. I don't really have much to add to that. It seems that we have a huge body of evidence that indicates that it would probably be much more optimal to go with like bias carbs more. And to my knowledge, there is really nothing that indicates that it would be superior for us to like take a keto approach to building muscle. So I mean, again, if that's like just your preferred route that's fine, but you probably have to be okay with the trade-off that it is going to be much less optimal for building muscle. So again, I don't, it's like, could I put normal gas in my diesel truck, right? Yeah, you probably could, Jeff. I know that hits you. I know you're a big truck guy. Um, but within that, yeah, maybe you could, and it might, it might run okay. But like, if you want optimal, it's not the approach I would recommend for really anyone. So, so I guess my question then is I have a Honda Civic. Can I use diesel for that? Is that going to be solid? <laughs> You're good <for> that. <laughs> um, a, a couple things off that. Uh, again, I, I don't have a lot to add, but my only thought to this would be like, I feel like there might be like certain situations and this would be like, like very specific, like avatars. I feel like that, that could potentially do it. One person that comes to mind would be like somebody that is like super, like not super, just overweight in general. Like, and, and they've kind of been like, they're just overweight. They've never really weight trained before. And like, they, they have had a lot of carbs in the past. To me, that could be somebody that could potentially do this and like build muscle. Right. Um, or just maybe somebody that's new to training. But with that, like, I feel like with the new to training person, it would be just a very like short lived thing that, that would work for them. And then you would probably need to like increase carb intake and, you know, focus on getting carbs in around your workouts. But I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys think there on that overweight person. I, I think they could potentially be somebody that they might benefit from, from that. Um, especially if they've, you know, they've just been eating the standard American diet where they just overeat all the time. I, I could see them potentially 
doing okay with that. Um, but to hit on Brandon's point too, about the surplus, I could see where that's like really challenging. Like you said, you can only eat so many like eggs and steak and things like that. And Brandon, for somebody like you, where you need to get up to like 4,000 calories, I mean, yeah, I was pouring MCT on ex- all of my foods. Exactly. I was utilizing oils that I didn't really like. Like they're super, ex- a lot of these ketogenic foods are super expensive. Like the steaks, I was young, I was just out of college and I was really trying to give it my all, but it was like, then I was having to go to less, um, less high quality, like just your regular virgin, you know, your very reg- uh, regular olive oil, because I was spending so much in extra virgin olive oil that was organic. And then I was looking at like, you know, if you look at Mac nut oil or you look at almonds, these are like, if you're really trying to maximize, especially a young, like this guy, he's six years into training. He's in his mid twenties. He was looking to maximize muscle gain. I told him, listen, there's many roads that lead to Rome. There's many paths to the same destination, but some is like a GPS. They take you right to where you're looking for. And then others take you through those back roads where you get lost and they're winding. And it's like, I'm really taking a long route to the same destination. It's like, is it worth it? And really when I look at different dietary approaches, I like saying I'm dietarily agnostic. I've had people on vegan diets. I've had people on I've had people come to me on carnivore diets. And the only thing I do is make sure I fill in their micronutrients in terms of supplementation. I've had people come to me on ketogenic diets and we've run them. I've had people on cyclical ketogenic diets, which even in the research, it shows it's sub, it's actually worse than ketogenic diets and worse than a carbohydrate or balanced diet. And I've had people come to me, I make them aware of the evidence. However, also it's about personal preference. So as with anything, anyone that I work with, it's based on what they can adhere to. And that's the ultimate thing. However, I always like informing a client. I believe in educated clients, a compliant client and understanding the mechanisms behind why something may or may not work. If you're looking to maximize muscle gain, you come to me and you say, listen, I do, I'll do whatever it takes. I want to maximize muscle gain. This is my goal. I'm this many years in the training. I'm advanced. I'm not going to get the newbie gains that someone that's overweight or obese could get from especially like a recomposition perspective. If someone's overweight and obese, we know that they in all studies that they recomp because they have enough stored body fat to liberate and utilize as fuel, even in the deficit. So that's why there's big, you know, debates about P ratios um, is because we see in the literature that a lot of people improve their P ratio when they're heavier because they're going from a state in which they had so much stored energy from both carbohydrates and fats that they're able to utilize those and burn them for energy throughout the process of building muscle tissue. And from a newbie, they're going to grow from anything, even without a dietary intervention. We have you know, multiple case studies outside of myself. I've had kids that comes to me over the years that they didn't have a lot of money. So it was the bare minimum in terms of protein quantity and quality. And they still grew because I put them on a progressive training stimulus. That's the number one thing to gain muscle. First is your training, make sure, making sure it's progressive. You're increasing the stimulus over time. So you're, it forces your body to adapt and grow. Second is high quality protein intake. We get those two things. You have most of the big rocks checked off, but once you get past that level of that early level and you get into more of an advanced level. Now we have to pull every lever we can. We have to look at nutrient timing. We need to look at, are you getting properly fueled from a glycogen perspective? Are you having sufficient fats to assimilate your, your fat soluble vitamins and minerals? And then also, you know, um, other cofactors. Are you making sure that you have enough essential fatty acids? And, and then we're looking at more of the nuances of nutrition. And it's not that someone can't utilize a lower carb approach, but the almost elimination of carbohydrates, I just see it's not giving you any benefit going into ketosis to gain muscle. And it could have, it has inherent drawbacks. So it's like, if it's not as good or better, why? And we know it's clinically worse. That's where I look at it. And I say, unless you have a pathology, insulin resistance, you're diabetic, you have, um, what is that? Epilepsy. One of the things that it's been proven for, then I don't think it's really um, a, a method that you should utilize long-term or look to. Unless you just want to down a bunch of oil from, from time to time, then <laughs> um, by all means. Yeah. Uh, 
Cool. Yeah, no, that, that, that summed it up uh, perfectly. So let's, I, let's do one more. I think this will be a, a quick one. This is kind of more like, just like we ended the last one, more like kind of a personal type thing. So uh, this was one that we got a while back and basically like it was, what are your favorite exercises for each muscle group? But let's not do that. Let's just talk. What, what are your kind of like your favorite uh, exercises that you're doing right now? You can pick like one or two if, if you want. Um, Jared, you can go first, man. Oh man. I have always just loved a dip. Uh, dips are going to be one of my all time favorite movements, really anything like a, a dip and a flat dumbbell bench press. I know that's super basic, really like costal pecs, I suppose, always been a strength of mine right away. When I started training, like I asked my brother, Hey, what should I do? He said, go bench every day, alternate between barbell bench press and dumbbell bench press. So like pecs have just always been right from the start my biggest focus. So I will say like, those are, those have probably always been and at least until the time being are definitely my two personal, just favorite movements. They feel great. I have a great mind muscle connection. They're definitely like my strength. Um, I would say those are probably my two personal favorites. Yeah. So honestly, it's a little bit interesting to talk about exercise variation. Cause I never speak about my own training, like in terms of what exercises I do, because I, Jeremiah, I'm sure you can relate to this. I'm six, two. Many of the things that I do, especially with my biomechanics, they don't fit the average person. So giving recommendations or what I do doesn't really fit the average person. However, generally, most of the movements that I prefer most are going to be in the length and overload. I'm a really big fan of like inclined cable curls or even an inclined dumbbell curl. Feel I really like being in the stretch position. I also need to maximize my bank for buck in terms of time. So we know that being in the lengthened position is more hypertrophic in comparison to being in the shortened position. So I really try to bias more of my movements towards my lengthened overload positions first. And then uh, oftentimes what ends up happening, to be honest with you guys, is a lot of my ex- my um, my training sessions get interrupted, whether it be for work or business or whatever it may be. And so I try to make sure that every single set that I'm doing is maximizing. And so in case a portion of my workout gets interrupted, that I'm able to at least get the most out of the least. And so I'd really try to go with length and overload movements. I'm a big fan of like an inclined dumbbell press, big fan of a fly press, especially through a full range. Um, you know, for, for back, um, I like to do unilateral, um, almost like the cast pull downs in terms of like unilateral that everyone does now, um, things like that. Um, so it's, it's always generally in a lengthened position. I also like doing, and this is something every time I talk to Brian Borstein, we go back and forth about this and we have this thing. And I, I know he talks about it all the time on his podcast, but we, we love lengthened, uh, over, uh, partials in the lengthened position. So just making sure, especially like with lat exercises, most of them are going to be in the shortened position. So just doing a couple extra reps or extra partials within that lengthened position. Cause like I'm saying, I'm trying to progress the stimulus and get the most out of the least, just in case I do have to cut a session short. And I've really found that to be, um, the biasing of length and overload movements to be very advantageous to my other clients that are in a similar position where we need to maximize their training to 45 minutes or an hour. And that's all they have. I'm trying to get the most bang for your buck. And it's not that we overlook shortened position, but if we have to pick one or the other, I'm looking at more compound movements that are going to stress the length and uh, overload component and get as much hypertrophy per set as possible. Love it. Uh, my Right now, my favorite, I've been loving like the new like back movements, like uh, just like kind of focusing more like on upper back and then like lat. Like, for example, I like... Uh, the step back single arm uh, i freaking love those dude i don't know what it is with those man those just light up the lats and i freaking love them go ahead with that i mean the thing with that is we have a nice little mashup where like by doing it step back the strength curve is going to match the resistance profile right so on most pulling moves specifically um 
we are going to be much weaker as the elbow gets closer to the body, right? But there, as we're doing a step back, which is normal, if you fit, which is different versus if we just did a normal chest supported, like hammer strength throw, like there, because we're stepped back, the movement is getting a little bit easier as we're getting weaker. So we're more matching the resistance profile of the machine to the strength curve. So I, I was going to bring that up as well. That's definitely like my favorite, personal favorite lat movement, just because it feels so damn good. And I feel like it's a, it's a nice little ego booster too. Cause you can freaking load that thing up. Like, like oh, no other. Cause I'm just like, dude, this is not heavy at all. I feel kind of like, I just feel like one of those guys at the gym where I'm just like, Oh dude, I'm going to just stack all these plates on this freaking thing. Um, but, but it feels good though. I, I, I like that one a lot. So all the back ones, even like I've been liking, like even just focusing on upper back too, that that's been cool to kind of change that up with my training and, and just programming for, for clients as well too. just kind of biasing, you know, upper back, lower, uh, you know, lats, things like that. That's, that's, always fun. And then other than that, like just, I things that I do hate any leg, any leg exercise, man, I freaking hate doing legs, uh, pendulum squats. You don't need to do them. So it's all good. (laughs) Pendulum squats, dude. I freaking, I, I like those at first, but dude, towards the end, I just, I was like, I just dread it every set. Cause like, dude, I don't know what it is with that pendulum squat. Like I I thought I was going to die. Like every time I'd go down and they come back up, like it was just halfway through. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get this thing back up, but, um, yeah, those were, those were my favorite. And then obviously just anytime I just any leg exercise, I freaking hate. So, um, cool guys, another, another great episode, uh, today. Um, is there anything else that you guys want to, uh, leave the audience with or anything like that before we, uh, hop off of here? Yeah, honestly, guys, if you guys hear this and anyone's going to be in Nashville, please reach out to one of the three of us. We will be down there and we would love to meet any of you guys that listen to any of our podcasts. Honestly, um, I'm big into engaging with with other people, especially in person. Uh, Jeremiah knows that. Jeff knows that. So I'm looking forward to seeing you boys down there first and foremost. But anyone else that listens to our podcast, please do not hesitate. Like, you know, a lot of times uh, you go to these conferences and a lot of people are a little bit shy or, you know, someone or you think, you know, them feel free to come up like. I'm super friendly. Jeremiah and I met at a conference, you know, after working together for quite some time, like it was like seeing old friends, you know what I mean? So feel free to come up to us, engage with us. That's what this is about. This is what this podcast is about. This is what we do on social media, like who we are on these podcasts, how we engage with one another. We're the same way outside of, uh, outside of the realms of social media. So feel free. We would love to meet you guys and we appreciate all the support. Also, if you ask questions and we didn't get to them, because I know there are like another, we put out another Q and A box and now there's like another 15 questions that we didn't get to. We will get to all your questions eventually as well. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to them, but now we, now we don't have to, to, to drop that in there for, for probably the next couple ones anyway. So, um, all right, cool guys. Uh, great chatting with you and we will uh, chat next time.